and welcome to Wired to be Weird, a podcast where we discuss the brain and how the brain interacts with this environment. Um, I'm Ian McLaughlin, a PhD student in neuroscience. And I'm Bo, and today we're going to talk about a topic that's pretty controversial. And I know that you said that even with, within your lab, there are disagreements between your colleagues and senior researchers. That's definitely true. And as contentious as it definitely is among the biomedical community, I think it's probably even more contentious among the public. And it all boils down to what seems like a rather simple question. Is addiction a disease or a disorder? And from what I can see, what you've prepared for us to discuss, it's a much deeper topic than I expected. For sure. I think that's true for most people because it's one of those things that's pretty familiar. As you know, many of us know someone who smokes or drinks too much or maybe is addicted to a more illicit drug like heroin or, as is increasingly the case in the US, painkillers. Frankly, while I think society has become more and more familiar with the concept of addiction, particularly given the unprecedented epidemic of opioid addiction that's currently like, ravaging the United States, I think only a small minority of people consider this question, even among addiction researchers with whom I work. Right, so you've asked your colleagues what they thought? Yeah, I have. And I found that it was clear that very few of them had spent much time thinking about addiction from this perspective. But after bringing up the topic, they pretty rapidly diverged and pretty vehemently. Actually, while doing a literature review for this conversation, trying to read as many opposing opinions as I could, I was just reminded of a different podcast called Hardcore History. Um, and a specific series on that podcast that focused on Genghis Khan uh, and, and the sort of Mongols of his era. Okay, so that's an unexpected direction. Um you know, where are you going with this? Right, yeah, not, not because addiction was a significant feature of like Mongolian society or anything like that, but Dan Carlin opens this series on the Mongols of, of Genghis Khan, or Genghis Khan as, as uh, Dan Carlin says, by making a provocative point. He suggests that someone could write a best-selling book by basing it all on the useful or positive effects, be that medical or architectural or in engineering, that were made by Nazi Germany. Yeah, I can see that's a pretty provocative point. Yeah, exactly. Super pro provocative. And of course, a book like that would be incredibly provocative, right? In any case, I think someone could set out to write a similarly provocative book, though not at the same level, perhaps, as the one that Dan Carlin suggested, by writing a book um, about how not only is opiate addiction not a disease or a disorder, but that the only reason heroin addicts suffer is due to it being illegal, not because of anything associated with the drug itself. Yeah, I think that would be pretty provocative. Uh, but do you think that's a convincing argument? Well, the difference between this hypothetical book Dan Carlin suggests would be provocative and this book that I'm talking about right here is that um, this argument has been made in the past in one way or another. An example is a book called Heroin Century, which I think we'll be discussing a little bit later. Is that book also provocative? <laughs> Uh, this is a very provocative podcast, too, isn't it? <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> okay, so does that book make the argument that addiction isn't a disease or a disorder? Well, not quite. And to be clear, it was published in 2002, well before opioid addiction in the United States reached the epidemic proportions it's reached today. I hear the phrase addiction epidemic a lot these days. Do you have an idea of some of the numbers behind that? I mean, clearly there are more people addicted to opioids today than there were in 2002, but do we have an idea of just how much worse it is today than it used to be? Yeah, so, so between 2004 and 2011, the number of emergency department visits due to opioid abuse increased by almost 200%, which, 
with just under half a million emergency room visits for prescription opioid abuse alone in 2011. So those are drugs like Oxycontin and Vicodin, right? Yeah, exactly. And that number excludes heroin, believe it or not. And the rates of heroin addiction and fatalities are somewhat more alarming. So between 1999 and uh, 2010, deaths from prescription opioid-related uh, fatalities quadrupled. During that time, fatalities attributed to heroin increased by less than 50% of what they were. Okay, so basically deaths from prescription painkillers was starting to skyrocket, while those from heroin were still increasing, but not as quickly. Right. But between 2010 and 2013, heroin overdose fatalities nearly tripled. And this is across all age groups, geographic regions, genders, and ethnicities, excluding Native American. Wow, okay, so there's been a major uptick in heroin overdoses more recently. Uh, do we know why that is? Well, there's a lot of interesting research out there, yeah. Uh, but one figure that may help to explain what's happened is that between 2008 and 2011, the likelihood that people who were using prescription opioids would also use heroin was two times higher than it was between 2002 and 2005. And between 2009 and 2011, 86% of new heroin users reported having used prescription opioids before first using heroin. So is the idea or conclusion from those statistics that it's that prescription opioids, you know, things that you get from your doctor through legitimate means are somehow the gateway to using heroin? That's definitely an argument that some are making. And there are some interesting reasons for why this might be the case. But it's important to note that while there is an unprecedented opioid epidemic, opioid addiction epidemic in the United States, the opioids are just a part of one family of potentially addictive drugs. There is a large number of other addictive drugs to which some folks develop addiction, right? Some of which are actually legal. Like alcohol or nicotine or coffee. <laughs> that's right. Well, coffee isn't a drug. It's a beverage that has a drug. But anyways, <laughs> that's right. And the lab of which I'm a part study both alcohol and nicotine, by the way. But you think that scientists in labs like yours rarely think about whether addiction is a disease or a disorder. I think that's the case, yeah, at least judging from my conversations with uh, the folks who study addiction in the labs at my institution. So honestly, that's kind of understandable. I know while I was working on my PhD and, you know, for my friends as well, you tend to focus more and more on less and less. And it's kind of necessary to do that, to be able to, you know, productively contribute to the scientific community. You have to be an expert on something very, very specific to be able to contribute. Right. It's kind of like building a skyscraper in my mind. So like the teams that are doing all the tiles in all the bathrooms, right? They don't necessarily need to be aware of every single part of the development of the skyscraper, right? They don't need to be involved with the architects or the people that lay the foundation or the interior designers even, right? But they do need to focus on making their particular contribution. Yeah, so I can see why someone focused on a, you know, how a particular brain circuit is involved with the withdrawal from a particular drug isn't necessarily spending as much time thinking about the sort of bird's eye perspective on how their project fits into the much broader context of their whole field. Exactly. But, but at least in this case, I think it's kind of important to consider at least in part because the current perspective of NIDA, or the National Institute of Drug Abuse in the United States, their current perspective is that addiction is definitely a brain disease. And because NIDA is the major financial supporter of research into the biology of addiction, this guiding principle sculpts the shape of how biomedical science confronts the challenge of addiction by selecting which projects and labs, and therefore which questions, get funding, and then which don't. Which, of course, affects what treatments 
get propagated to the general public. Yeah, I mean, in- exactly, indirectly. And so how does the rest of the field feel about that? Well, it's, it's complicated. Like if you look, for example, just at the Wikipedia page for addiction, in the first five words on the page, the first five words are addiction is a brain disorder, citing seven sources, some of which support and some that refute that very claim. Oh, so NIDA says it's a disease, but Wikipedia, with several sources, says it's a disorder. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely, there's a motivated contingent of scientists that vehemently disagree with the brain disease model of addiction. Okay, but before we go on, this is also the first podcast where we have some sponsors to talk about. What, what? (laughs) Yeah, that's right. So I had some graduates of the university where I'm doing my PhD reach out to me and see if we might be interested in working together. And I thought we ought to give it a shot. So we'd like to thank Backyard Media for partnering with us and for connecting us with companies uh, uh, we'll briefly chat about. All right. So who's first? The first is a company that most people who listen to podcasts have probably heard of, which is Helix Sleep. Ooh, helix sleep, like a double helix, you know, clearly very applicable. (laughs) Right. So particularly since we're going to be talking about genetics a fair bit in these episodes, but their company isn't double helix. It's just helix sleep, right? So their concept is that um, they offer personalized mattresses that aren't crazy expensive and they personalize the mattresses by having you take a little quiz um, and then they send you out a mattress, right? That matches up with your responses. So so if you go to helixsleep.com slash wired, They'll take $50 off the price of your personalized mattress. Wired for wired to be weird. Yeah, that's right. And uh, that's how they'll know that we sent you. So it's helixsleep.com slash wired. They'll take $50 off the price. And uh, they know that a neuroscience podcast got you there. Okay, so we'll talk about the other ones a little later. Yeah, sounds good. Let's get back into it. So while I was considering how we could approach this question, I realized that while I spent over half a decade focusing on understanding how a particular part of the brain contributes to addiction, I really spent a fraction of that time focusing on learning the history of the concept of addiction. And I found that it's actually very helpful to this discussion of whether addiction is a disease or a disorder to have that foundation in history. You mean the historical concepts and definitions of addiction. Right. Like, like for example, it's not like the word addict or addiction has existed forever. It had to be invented to represent an idea, right? And so try as I might, I couldn't get an entirely conclusive origin. But according to the online etymology dictionary run by Douglas Harper, who's an endowed professor at Duquesne University, the term addiction emerged around the 1600s uh, with the meaning of tendency, inclination, or penchant, which is kind of a less severe meaning that's kind of become obsolete. That's interesting, though, because I always hear you argue that we throw the term addiction around too loosely because it means something very specific. But apparently the way a lot of people use it is closer to the original usage of the term. Yeah, it looks like that's the case. So you're wrong. (laughs) Yeah, it happens every now and then. (laughs) Anyways, it then appears to have evolved in the 17th century to mean a habit or pursuit. But what's interesting is that it's based off of a Latin term that meant to deliver, award, devote, consecrate, and sacrifice. This sounds a bit more intense than someone with a penchant. Right. And of course, this isn't exactly my expertise, but according to a book by Dan uh, Major, the history of these terms is rooted in ancient Rome, where addiction was an award to Roman soldiers. So Roman soldiers got an addiction as an award? I mean, sounds like a pretty terrible incentive. (laughs) Yeah, sort of. (laughs) But evidently, Roman soldiers were given slaves as part of their compensation for their work in battle. And those slaves were called addicts. And over time, people who became slaves to anything in general came to be known as addicts. 
Okay, so that's actually quite clever. It's like the roots of the word suggest that someone who's addicted to a drug is a slave to that drug. Right, yeah, it seems like that's the evolution of the term. So what are some examples of the history of humans using drugs that are helpful to understanding contemporary addiction? Yeah, so there are some examples from history that I found are surprising to basically everyone, even those who are involved in addiction research. Like, for example, you might be familiar with the company Bayer. And I assume you mean the pharmaceutical company, right? That's right, though early on they were primarily a dye company. Dye, like uh, chemicals that change a fabric's color? Yeah, exactly. That's what the founders had experience doing at the time. In any case, they currently make one of the most famous pharmaceuticals in the world, aspirin. Okay, sure. I mean, I know aspirin. I think everybody knows aspirin. So what about Bayer is relevant to the history of addiction? Well, a couple decades after being established, the firm begins investing in pharmaceutical research. And in August of 1897, they begin acetylating various molecules. So acetylating, for the people who didn't have to go through chemistry classes like Ian, <laughs> means adding a thing called an acetyl group to a molecule. And you're probably very familiar with the acetyl group, more than you think particularly if you ever had a salad with balsamic vinegar on it, or just a restaurant that gives you bread with olive oil and vinegar. The main reason that vinegar has that unique flavor is due to it having a lot of acetic acid in it. That's right. So acetyl groups are involved in our biology at a bunch of different levels. And for example, one of my favorite neurotransmitters is infamously acetylated, acetylcholine. So that's a choline with an acetyl group added. Exactly. <laughs> Okay, so back to our story. At the end of the 1800s, Bayer was adding acetyl groups to molecules, but they weren't trying to make them vinegary. <laughs> yeah, that wasn't their goal. <laughs> so in August of 1897, chemists at Bayer acetylate, or add an acetyl group, right, to salicylic acid, and they make aspirin. Then, just a few days later, they acetylate another molecule that had been synthesized just 23 years earlier by a chemist named Charles R.A. Wright that changes the relationship between humans and drugs from that day forward. Sounds pretty ominous. Yeah, it, it kind of is. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> right, so they also acetylated a pretty well-known molecule called morphine. Morphine, the prescription painkiller that people really tend to like. That's right, well, some people, that's right. And, uh, and so Charles R.A. Wright had been testing the effects of combining morphine with various acids and ended up adding morphine to acetic acid and heat for a few hours. Wright himself evidently didn't test the product, but he sent it to a fellow English scientist in Manchester who then administered it to a couple of animals, noticing that it constricted their pupils, which is a telltale sign of, of opioid use, which is kind of unique to opioids in terms of recreational drugs, along with, and I quote, what he observed was, I quote, a want of coordinating power over the muscular movements and loss of power in the pelvis and hind limbs. So basically, his friend in Manchester gave this mystery compound to some animal test subjects, and they had poor motor coordination and tiny pupils, which are some of the effects that, of opioid painkillers that we see in people. Yeah, exactly. Basically, he saw their pupils became tiny, which is pretty unique to opioids, right? It's sort of like a signature effect. Um, and then they were also basically pretty sedated, like you might see in someone who's taken heroin or oxycodone and is sort of nodding in and out of being conscious. And when you say nodding in and out of consciousness, uh, I've heard the term nodding. Is that what that refers to? Yep, that's exactly right. And that was what the chemists at Bayer resynthesized around the time that they made aspirin. So what is this mystery compound? It was heroin. And believe it or not, Charles Wright 
right, the person who first synthesized heroin 23 years earlier, his goal was to create a less addictive iteration of morphine. But ultimately, he made a considerably more potent chemical relative, right? And Bayer, just over two decades later, resynthesizes diacetylmorphine, right, which is what this acetylated morphine is, labeled it heroin, which was based on the German term heroish, right, or heroish. Uh, of course, I don't speak German, but it's a German term, which means heroic, I would presume due to the euphoric properties of the drug. Wow. So in the span of a few days, one company manufactures two of some of the most widely consumed drugs in the world, aspirin and heroin. Exactly. And while aspirin has been fairly uncontroversial, Bayer initially marketed heroin as the equivalent of an over-the-counter drug, as a cough suppressant that didn't suffer from the pesky side effects that plagued morphine. Like being super addictive? <laughs> yeah, it's exactly right. Or at, at least up until 1910. Um, it was basically marketed as a general cough suppressant, an alternative to morphine. And 120 years later, the United States is now experiencing a well-recognized epidemic of opioid addiction with record numbers of fatalities due to overdoses and complications of the use of opioids. So if the scientists at Bayer were acetylating morphine, then morphine must have been discovered a while before heroin, right? That's absolutely right. So according to historians, the use of opiates dates all the way back to the Sumerians of Mesopotamia who were cultivating the opium poppy in 3400 BCE. And I assume morphine is also an opiate? Oh, yes. Sorry. That's right. Morphine is an opiate. Okay, so that's like five and a half thousand years ago that humans were using opiates. That's the earliest record I could find, yeah. So it's natural. I mean, surely it can't be that bad. For us. Oh, yeah, right, right. That's, yeah, uh, no, <laughs> not the case. Although there's some interesting discussion to be had there because heroin, opioids in general, they don't damage the nervous system, they're just super duper profoundly addictive. Um, and causes death through other means. Through overdose, right. But they do not damage the nervous system. That's kind of a weird feature of opiates. Anyways. <laughs> okay, well, before we go much further, we've used the terms opiates and opioids. Are they basically interchangeable or, you know, do they have different definitions? Yes, excellent. Uh, thank you for bringing that up. So this is a mistake that a ton of people make, and that even includes physicians and some scientists. The term opioid refers to any molecule that can bind to the receptors in our bodies and brains, right, that uh, are called opioid receptors. So drugs like morphine um, or hydrocodone, the main ingredient in Vicodin, or oxycodone, the main ingredient in Oxycontin and even Percocet, or even heroin, the main ingredient in, you know, heroin. <laughs> they all largely bind the same receptors in the central nervous system. If it doesn't damage the nervous system... If then, heroin doesn't damage the yeah, nervous system. Yeah, then why does it kill you via overdose. What is it damaging? So it's not that it's damaging anything. It's just it's overstimulating something that inhibits respiration. So it inhibits your uh, breath. And okay. so it's sort of like cranking up the volume way too high on that inhibit. On, it's like slamming the brakes on your ability to breathe. So it makes you stop breathing. Yeah, respiratory failure. That's how people die of overdoses. And I imagine that these are receptors that usually interact with neurotransmitters that our body makes naturally. That's right. Uh, and that's the case for most drugs that people use recreationally. Many people might be familiar with the endorphin neurotransmitters, right? Well, endorphins bind the same set of receptors in our nervous system that these drugs bind. And these are called opioid receptors. And by the way, our nervous system also makes neurotransmitters called endomorphins. Like endogenous morphine? Yeah, that's right. So endo for endogenous and morphines for morphine. <laughs> uh, so, and these are neurotransmitters that our bodies make that pretty selectively bind the primary receptor that morphine and uh, the other painkillers bind, which is called the mu opioid receptor. 
So by the way, we should say that if any of these terms sound like gibberish, <laughs> you're, you're probably you're <laughs> most likely not alone. Uh, you yeah. should check out the first episode of the podcast where we discuss things like receptors and neurotransmitters. Yeah, good idea. Okay, so anyways, opioids are drugs that bind opioid receptors. That makes sense. So then what's the difference between opioids and opiates? So opiates is a category that includes any drug that's derived from the opium poppy plant, which is a sort of funny looking plant with a super duper long stem with some leaves that poke out from its sides with a flower bud at the end of the stem that's almost the size of a golf ball. Um, And if it's left to, to grow naturally, the bud produces some pretty beautiful flowers. But thousands of years ago, humans discovered that within the sap of the flower bud is a set of molecules that have pain killing and euphoric properties. And those would be opiates, I assume? Right, and so the best known being morphine and codeine. So the Sumerians called it hulgil, which uh, evidently translates to joy plant. Of course, I don't speak Sumerian, so I don't know if that's how you pronounce that, but they called it joy plant. It's pretty wild that there's so many similarities between how recreational users of today and 5,000 years ago interacted with the same joy plant. Right, for sure. And beyond early uses of opium, in the 1500s, Paracelsus, or Philippus von Hohenheim, um, who's been called the father of toxicology, has been credited with introducing the use of laudanum, which is basically an opium extract for use as a medication. And then, after that, Thomas Sydenham, I think is how you say that name, uh, in the middle of the 1600s popularized the use of laudanum along with other opioid preparations. Morphine was then extracted at the very beginning of the 19th century. Wow, so pure morphine has been around for over 200 years. Yeah, that's right. Okay, well, morphine and heroin and opioids are just one family of addictive drugs. Why don't we step back a bit and discuss addiction more broadly? Good idea. So, for example, was addiction considered a disease or a disorder in the past? And like you said earlier, NIDA's current perspective is that addiction is a brain disease. That's right. In fact, there's a quote from Nora Volko, who's been the head of NIDA since 2012, that might help to frame how NIDA conceives of addiction. Quote, Throughout much of the last century, Scientists studying drug abuse labored in the shadows of powerful myths and misconceptions about the nature of addiction. When science began to study addictive behavior in the 1930s, people addicted to drugs were thought to be morally flawed and lacking in willpower. Those views shaped society's responses to drug abuse, treating it as a moral failing rather than a health problem, which led to an emphasis on punitive rather than preventative and therapeutic actions. Today, thanks to science, our views and responses to drug abuse have changed dramatically, Groundbreaking discoveries about the brain have revolutionized our understanding of drug addiction, enabling us to respond effectively to the problem. So basically, she's saying that addiction used to just be considered a moral flaw and a lack of willpower. But now, the way that society sees addiction, or has at least started to see addiction, has changed due to the scientific discoveries about the brain. Yeah, that's basically the argument she's making. And so was Nora Volkow? Volko? Volko, <laughs> sorry. The first director of NIDA? Actually, no. So the roots of NIDA go back to the early 20th century, believe it or not, to a research center that was um, a part of the United States Public Health Service Hospital that was in Lexington, Kentucky. Uh, You can actually see pictures on the archives at drugabuse.gov of the first addiction research center staff, the first director being uh, Clifton uh, Himmelsbach. They um, also had a psychologist, a chemist, a biophysicist, and a physiologist who then became the Addiction Research Center's second director named Edwin Williams. So basically, they had a bunch of disciplines represented. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of funny to look at this picture. By the way, super awesome to use a picture to guide a conversation for a podcast. (laughs) Yeah, I know. 
Okay, anyways, uh, you can go check it out on drugabuse.gov. It's cool. Anyways, when I think of all the various disciplines involved in addiction research um, uh, currently, it's almost like each of those researchers ended up representing what would become entire communities of scientists, each of which contributed indispensable expertise to the study of addiction. You mean there are communities of chemists, psychologists, and so on that all study addiction, right? I mean, that makes sense given that drugs are chemicals that interact with the brain. Yeah, exactly. Each of those domains are critical to understanding human behavior and addiction in particular, right? Um, and it's just, it's just pretty cool to see a picture where each of these disciplines is represented by a single dude posing for a picture in black and white. It's like the forefathers of... Johns Hopkins. <laughs> yeah, what kind of? Okay, so, and you say that all started in the early 20th century. Yeah, that's right. 1935 was when the lab that ultimately became the Addiction Research Center was established. Then there was a, a bunch of administrative shakeups that happened during the 70s and the 90s, but in 1974, NIDA was created. In 1992, NIDA was incorporated into the broader National Institutes of Health, right, the NIH, which falls under the Department of Health and Human Services. Okay, so now we're hearing a bunch of things that sound more familiar, National Institutes of Health or NIH, and the Department of Health and Human Services. I mean, this is how things are currently organized in the government. Yep, that's right. Okay, so coming back to Nora Volkow. Volkow. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's okay. She gets it all the time. I, I'm sorry, I'm apologizing, Nora, specifically. <laughs> is she the first to have proposed the brain disease model? Not quite. In 1997, Alan Leshner, a former director of NIDA, published an article in the journal Science, arguing that addiction is a chronic and relapsing brain disease. So at least 20 years ago, the then director of NIDA called addiction a brain disease. That's right. And by the way, Leshner was involved in what became a very, fairly notorious scandal in science. Ooh, the drama and the gossip, a science scandal. <laughs> yeah, involving the director of NIDA and MDMA, or ecstasy. But before we go into that, let's talk about our other sponsors. Sounds good. All right, so we've talked about mattresses so far. A different company is interested in taking care of your sofa needs. <laughs> Burrow.com has sofas that are made to be modular, and they ship directly to you super fast for like half the price of like fancy designer sofas. Uh, why do you compare them to fancy designer sofas? Right, so I say that because evidently these are sofas that are made out of the same types of things uh, as the stuff you'll see in stores like Pottery Barn. So stores that basically have those window displays that always make you super jealous because your house doesn't <laughs> look so Instagram worthy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And so evidently these folks have sofas with um, USB ports in them. So you can charge all your devices while you're playing video games instead of doing what you're supposed to be doing since you're pretty much inevitably going to be putting your sofa in front of one of the outlets in your house, right? So that's pretty nice. Okay, I am so sold. A sofa with a <laughs> USB port, I mean, that is like, Gold. That is gold. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So if you go to burrow.com and use the promo code WIRED, they'll take $50 off the price of your order. I mean, how many times are you sitting on your sofa using your phone or iPad and it's running out of battery? How many times does that happen? <laughs> it happens all the time. And so burrow.com has that issue in mind. <laughs> okay. Uh, and who's our next sponsor? Well, this next group has offered us some particularly um, unique support. Okay, so they're supporters, but then why do you weirdly emphasize the word support? Well, because they offer support to us as well as our listeners. Okay. 
<laughs> Harper Wild. Okay, so Harper Wild is a company that, and I'm going to quote from them, takes the BS out of bra shopping. Bra shopping. I mean, that is a huge pain point for you, isn't it? <laughs> but by the way, I get it. Bra support. Haha. <laughs> Very funny. <laughs> right. Okay. Uh, Harper Wild is an e-commerce bra company that offers free home try-ons. Um, and the, quote, simplest shopping experience known to a woman. Okay, so home try-ons is probably, you know, I can see how that's going to be so much more convenient and you're going to be so much more comfortable in your own home, you know, trying on the bras, maybe with the outfit that you wanted to wear specifically. You know, it just makes a lot of sense. Right, so, and, so, so their mission is to empower women by providing fairly priced everyday bras without the hassle, but also by helping lift the next generation of leading women through their partnership with Glamour's The Girl Project. And what is The Girl Project? Well, I'm glad you asked, Bo. So the concept is that they are working to help educate young girls in over 100 countries. That sounds like a really awesome educational effort. Yeah, that's right. And uh, there's another quote from them uh, that I can't pass up in reading. Um, so not only, it was a quote, not only will they lift your ladies, but they're also working to lift the next generation of leading ladies. <laughs> that's cute. Yeah. So, of course, I love that this company has this particular philanthropic aspect to their business. So, in any case, if you're in the market for some new bras and want to try out a system that lets you try on at, on at home while helping to support the education of young women, visit uh, HarperWild, and that's wild with an E, dot com, and use the promo code WIRED to get 10% off your order. And all of the websites and information is going to be in the text uh, associated with the podcast. Yep, that's right. Okay, so we left off on a science scandal involving a former head of NIDA. So what happened? Well, the, the sort of short story is that um, there was a paper published in one of the most important journals in science, called Science, about the effects of MDMA on the brain in September of 2002. Well, the author of the paper had basically identified pretty substantial neurotoxicity induced by MDMA via dopamine. He saw levels of toxicity that other researchers hadn't seen. And to be clear, I know you mentioned it before the break, but MDMA is more informally called ecstasy, right? Yeah, or, or molly or rolls. I mean, it's gone by a bunch of different names over the years. Um, but anyways, ecstasy had, had become really quite popular among folks who were going to like raves, right, or ravers. And this controversial paper was essentially used by policymakers to highlight significant dangers of taking MDMA. And this is where Lushner comes in? Right. So he was quoted as saying, quote, This says even a single evening's use is playing Russian roulette with your own brain, end quote. And because he had been the director of NIDA just a year before this paper was published, he still had a ton of clout among uh, policymakers. And so the results of this paper were cited when Congress was writing what came to be known as the Illicit Drug Anti-Proliferation Act, also known as the RAVE Act, which stood for Reducing America's Vulnerability to Ecstasy Act. Seems a little heavy-handed, like, get it? RAVE? Ecstasy? <laughs> yeah, right. Um, yeah, it, it's a little silly. But um, it really does make it clear how central to the whole thing, ecstasy, and this paper in particular, which, again, was repeatedly cited in front of the legislature, had become on a policy level. And, okay, all jokes aside, what did the Rave Act do? Basically, it made it easier to prosecute the owners of the venues at which raves occurred, as well as the promoters of raves. Beyond that, it also funded PSAs that argued that just one dose of ecstasy could permanently damage your brain. And so I assume since the paper is controversial, there were problems with the science? Right. So the paper is published in 2002. Then, in 2003, a paper, or really to be more precise, a letter, was published in Science that questioned the research in that original 2002 paper. 
uh, inviting the original researcher to respond. And respond he does, standing by his results and even doubling down and arguing that even the most clinically supervised administration of MDMA could cause permanent brain damage. Okay, so, so far this sounds like a disagreement in science, which happens all the time. Where's the controversy? Right, so, well, the, the paper is retracted in 2003, about a year after it's published. The researcher reveals that methamphetamine, a close chemical relative of MDMA but pharmacologically fundamentally different, was actually what was causing the damage he identified. So he was actually administering and studying methamphetamine, or meth, not MDMA or ecstasy. That's right. Yeah, so, so to be clear, right, MDMA is methylene dioxy methamphetamine, right? And so the, it was basically a mix-up of vials. I mean, that's a huge mistake because even though they're kind of related, it's essentially an entirely different compound. It is a different compound. And it, when it came down to the disagreements in terms of the pharmacology, like basically the claims were that this MDMA was causing brain damage by elevating dopamine. Before that, it, MDMA was considered to be almost entirely or exclusively serotonergic, meaning it influenced serotonin levels and not dopamine levels. And so right when this paper was published, there was a lot of controversy. So was it just that Leshner, the former NIDA director, had advocated for policy based off of this retracted paper? Well, there's a bit more to it than that. So not only was Leshner the director of NIDA, but he was also the CEO of a company called AAAS, which is the organization that runs the journal in which the retracted paper was published, among other things. AAAS does, does a bunch of things. So Leshner was advocating for policy changes from a position of significant authority, but doing so based off of the findings of a paper published in what was basically his own journal, in the face of disagreement from the scientific community on the claims made in that paper. Oh, I see. Right. And it drew some serious backlash, right? And so there's a particular quote from an editorial in the journal Nature that I think illustrates how some scientists felt about it. Quote, some observers have in the past questioned NIDA's ability to maintain its independence in the face of immense pressures brought to bear by those who stand behind America's interminable war on drugs. Now that Leshner is at AAAS, he needs to safeguard its independence rather than pander to the Bush administration's jihad against recreational drug use, end quote. So Nature, another a major scientific publication, it's like the battle between nature and science now. Now, arguably nature and science are like the two biggest and most widely circulated journals in the scientific community. When I say biggest, I mean just articles that are published in nature or science, just a ton of eyeballs see them, right? And so they, you know, they have um, a really, really high circulation. So yeah, exactly. It's sort of like, you know, nature criticizing the choices of, of science. It's like Coke versus Pepsi. <laughs> yeah, kind of. Um, yeah, and, and also keep in mind, right, this editorial was published in 2003, okay, so, you know, they used the, the term jihad against recreational drug use. This is 2003, so there's definitely some deliberately inflammatory language. Anyways, to bring our conversation back to the current debate of disease versus disorder, you said that some historians vehemently disagree with the historical claims that Nora Volko... Nice. <laughs> yeah, the current director of NIDA. That's right. Some <laughs> historians disagree with the claims she's made in the statement that we quoted earlier. That's right. So um, David Courtright, for example, argues that almost every single historical claim in the quote is either factually incorrect or just wishful thinking. <laughs> So he's basically attacking the whole thing. <laughs> right, yeah. So for example, when she said that science began to study addictive behavior in the 1930s and that the popular perception of addicts at the time was that they were morally flawed, 
while Courtright argues that neither popular nor medical perception of addicts were that they are morally flawed. They did, however, distinguish between medical and non-medical addicts by focusing on whether they were involved in the criminal world. He said that it was sort of like all junkies were addicts, but not all addicts were junkies. And so, sorry, what's a junkie? Oh, sure. Okay. So, so I, I think that the point he's making is that, you know, a, a sort of derogatory term, right, that you know, a junkie um, was only used to describe a certain group of people who were addicted to, you know, a drug like, like heroin, right? So it's, it's sort of pejorative. But the point he's making is that not all of the addicts were labeled with this pejorative term. Okay, got it. So it's kind of, seems kind of nitpicky. So people didn't necessarily think that all addicts were morally flawed or lacking willpower. Uh, but it still doesn't seem from that argument that addiction was considered a medical condition, right? Well, he then highlights that a psychiatrist named Lawrence Kolb, who was fairly well known at the time, began federally funded research in 1923, doing lab work with non-human primates as well as 230 human cases. But, I mean, let me just argue that there's not a massive difference between 1923 and 1930. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely fair enough. But an interesting argument that Courtright makes is that there may be a reason that this early research hasn't really been included in the sort of accepted history of addiction from the perspective of NIDA. Ah, you mean like a cover-up of conspiracy. <laughs> right, now I, now, I don't know that that's what it is. But a takeaway um, from that work was that addiction was probably rooted in, like, psychopathy. Um, and other personality disorders, and wasn't its own medical condition. So, so the argument Courtright is making is that it probably just didn't fit neatly into the common wisdom of addiction, particularly since it was the early days of concerted efforts to understand this kind of behavior. So basically, because his work suggested that addiction might not be its own medical condition and may be a part of other medical conditions, it just isn't particularly useful to the concept of addiction for NIDA. Yeah, kind of. Not that it's on purpose necessarily, though there are some that would argue that it might be on purpose. Not from Norivoco, but just intentionally not acknowledged. But more than that, if someone from NIDA were writing a big book on what addiction is, there just wouldn't really be room for a chapter on that kind of an argument. Because it kind of sticks out like a sore thumb? Yeah, exactly. Okay, so if the field hasn't adopted the perspective that addiction is generally a manifestation of other medical conditions, what are the ramifications of that? Well, there's sort of a benevolent aspect to medicalizing addiction. Benevolent how so? Yeah, so, so benevolent and also sort of useful, right? It's benevolent because if it's no longer just a moral failure or lack of willpower, but rather an afflicted organ, you know, the brain, then not only are addicts the victims of a disease akin to patients with like diabetes, but that there's now a kind of research strategy that we can use to address this problem, right? We can now deploy the strategies we've used to understand things like dementia or schizophrenia or even, you know, insomnia to understanding why people develop problematic substance use. So scientists can draw on the skills that are used to study other parts and diseases of the brain to also study addiction. Yeah, exactly. And so what are the things that are the basis for the current conception of addiction as a brain disease? So there are a bunch of things, but broadly speaking, they revolve around finding aspects of our biology and genetics that interact with drugs in specific ways and in ways that are unique to the addicted state. So, for example, the discovery that if you put electrodes into particular parts of the rat brain and let rats control when and how much those electrodes stimulate those particular parts of the brain, they'll basically just sit there and stimulate those brain regions a ton. It's a model called intracranial self-stimulation. 
And then there are discoveries of things like our body's own opioid system. And I imagine that that's the system that opiates like morphine interact with. That's right. And then there's the somewhat recent mapping out of the dopamine pathway that's implicated in much of the rewarding effects of essentially every drug um, that's addictive and that people do recreationally. So alcohol, nicotine, cocaine, heroin, I mean, they all activate that part of the brain? Yeah, either, either directly or indirectly uh, they do. And even more recently, there's this, the discovery of short nucleotide polymorphisms, or SNPs, which are basically very, very small differences in the genes for things like dopamine receptors or serotonin transporters that distinguish each of our genomes. There's the discovery that some of those SNPs are correlated with increased risks of addiction. So if you inherit one of those SNPs, are you more likely to become addicted to a drug? So that's, that's what some of the research that finds significant correlations between people who have you know, specific SNPs and specific genes and increased risks of developing addiction yeah, are, are claiming. Um, and then finally, there's neuroimaging research that basically compares broad patterns of brain activation in addicts compared to non-addict controls. Um, and scientists have shown that there are you know, broad differences between these groups. So these are studies that I assume use things like fMRI? Yeah, that's right. A neuroimaging technology that can show changes in metabolism, technically, or the use of energy and oxygen in various parts of the brains over the course of a few seconds. Okay, so we have these bases in biology for addiction. We know what drugs are doing to the brain. And we know that there are some things that are unique to the biologies of addicts compared to people who don't develop addiction. Well, I, I mean, I should say that we know a lot about these things. We don't know everything about how, how all of these drugs work, right? Nor can we, with you know, extremely high confidence, predict who will and who will not develop addiction if they're exposed to morphine, for example. But the field is does seem like it's on track to be getting there. But another thing that the historian criticizes about Nora's claim is that outside of much of the biomedical community, public attitudes towards addiction actually haven't changed all that dramatically. Meaning that there are still people who view addiction as a weakness or a lack of morality of some sort. Yeah, well, so either that um, it's, it's like not a disease at all, or if not that specific, that addiction is best confronted with punishment rather than treatment. So, you know, for example, the strategy that the federal government has taken to confront problematic drug use is largely just punitive, and it's become more and more punitive, despite the brain disease of addiction uh, uh, paradigm being more and more accepted through the 1980s and 1990s. So in other words, while many scientists and physicians were starting to view addiction as a disease, instead of addressing the problem of addiction like it addresses other diseases, the government uses punishment as the solution. Right, like it would be completely absurd if the government decided to just imprison everybody who develops cancer, right? That would be totally outrageous and just completely irrational given what we know and assume about cancer. Well, if the National Institutes of Health perceive addiction to be a disease and not a moral failure, right, then it ought to be just as outrageous that addicts are imprisoned for being caught with the drugs to which they're addicted, right? Well, I mean, it's not like there are cancer cartels out there trafficking in various kinds of cancer. I mean, so there's an important difference there. Sure, I mean, there's a lot to dive into in terms of drugs that cause cancer being legal and so on, right, like cigarettes. But even stipulating that, you know, that there's a role for punishment to be played in disincentivizing the trafficking of drugs, we can just focus on the fact that being caught with even tiny amounts of addictive drugs, amounts that are clearly for personal use, can still result in life-altering criminal convictions in prison time. It's like if, as the perception of the National Institutes of Drug Abuse suggests, people who are buying like $50 to $100 worth of heroin or oxycodone on the street are suffering from a disease, 
then there's clearly a disagreement between the federal government and its own primary agency that supports biomedical research with regards to how we ought to confront this issue. Fair enough. So if it were widely accepted to be a disease, then yeah, it'd be strange to imprison people with even small amounts of an illegal drug. So is there an explanation for why it is that this disagreement even between federal government agencies, continues to exist. So I've seen it explained as a byproduct of tension between four major interest groups. So there are the medical personnel who do largely view addicts as patients, with or without a disease, right? They're patients. Then there are police who perceive addictive behavior as leading to crime and societal harms, and the tools that they have at their disposal are detainment and prison. Next are the social scientists who make arguments that addiction as a concept really emerges from a social construct of what precisely constitutes good or bad drugs. And there's some very interesting and provocative arguments um, that the approach of criminalizing certain drug use is actually the root of all of the problems of the use of those drugs. There are various examples of this argument. So for example, a book called Heroin Century, right, that we talked about earlier by um, Tom Carnwath, Carnwath and Ian Smith, a psychiatrist and a sociologist who is a former heroin addict, they make the argument that heroin addiction and drug-taking behavior in general is not as one-dimensional as many in society perceive. That drug use, even a drug as addictive as heroin, doesn't necessarily equal crime and suffering. They use their experiences of, of pop stars and politicians and criminals and even scientists in their argument. Wow, that's really interesting. Yeah, and like I said, you know, pretty provocative. And then finally, there are political actors, from politicians to organized interest groups. And these are the folks that ultimately sculpt the nature of drug control and the availability of drug addiction treatment. And early on in the 1920s to the 1930s, the primary groups that dominated um, the way that society engaged with drug addiction were law enforcement and political actors. And it was simple and it was rigid. Later, in the mid-1960s and 1970s, medical professionals and sociologists had more influence. There was the promise of new therapeutic approaches. Methadone maintenance becomes available. NIDA came into existence, right? And there was an appetite for a new understanding of drug use and addiction. And I think we should clarify that methadone maintenance is one of the strategies to treat heroin addiction, right? Yeah, that's right. It's basically a very long-acting opioid that delivers some of the effects of drugs like heroin or morphine or oxycodone, but just not quite as strong. And it also makes it hard for people to get rewarding effects from those very drugs. Okay, so from the 60s to the 70s, a new kind of concept of addiction was emerging. So what happens next? Well, there was a resurgence of a dominance by law enforcement. And this was even while NIDA-supported research was generating new scientific breakthroughs in the understanding of addiction. So despite those breakthroughs, politicians had discovered a very effective campaign mechanism. And this was based, at least in part, on um, rising crime rates, racial tension, and, and broad drug experimentation, and new kinds of interactions between the genders and a sort of sexual permissiveness that I think we tend to associate with, with the 1960s. And so among the various issues that became significant parts of the political discussion at the time was the drug war. The war on drugs. That's right. Declared by President Richard Nixon in 1971, dramatically increasing the size and presence of federal drug control agencies, supporting strategies like mandatory sentencing. And then other politicians at the time, Nelson Rockefeller, for example, the governor of New York and presidential hopeful, proposed things like mandatory life sentences for drug traffickers. And polls in New York state suggested that two thirds of residents agreed. Wow, so there was broad support for a highly punitive approach to the issue. Yeah, and there's a quote from President Nixon that goes, quote, Rocky can ride the thing for all it's worth to his aides Haldeman and Ehrlichman. And Rocky meaning Nelson Rockefeller. 
Then, though, the whole Watergate thing happened, which sort of slowed changes in this uh, arena until President uh, Ronald Reagan took office, proposing increased spending to combat uh, drug abuse. Uh, there's a, a New York Times article from the day after a speech from, the pre from President Reagan that outlines all the things that were, were, were proposed, from making capital punishment applicable to drug crimes where offenders intentionally cause uh, death, and to allow for the use of illegally obtained evidence in drug trials. It's interesting to read through this article with contemporary eyes, and, and I'll, I'll have a link on the website uh, blog for anybody that might want to check it out. Anyways, after President Reagan came President George H.W. Bush who, in his first nationally televised speech as president, held up a bag containing a whole bunch of crack cocaine that was seized near the White House. And honestly, it's pretty remarkable to watch. Like, you can watch it on YouTube. Of course it's on YouTube. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I think it's, it's worth watching because I just, I honestly can't imagine it happening ever again. It's just kind of wild to see. Anyways, um, so ever since that era, there's really been very little done in the opposite direction in terms of, you know, a punitive strategy to address drug use and addiction from a federal, uh, like, legislative uh, level. Okay, so politicians have found the war on drugs to be an effective campaign topic. But all the while, if NIDA and biomedical science was developing the perspective that addiction is a disease, then why didn't they raise a bigger stink about how punishment-oriented the federal government was becoming towards a disease? Well, the histories that I've read make the argument that the concept of addiction as a disease can actually be somewhat congruent with a punitive approach to uh, drug addiction because... Whether addiction is a disease or a disorder or just a personal moral failure, if you restrict the exposure of an unaddicted brain to a drug in the first place, then it won't be a problem. Then, beyond that, if you restrict exposure of an addict to drugs subsequent to punishment, right, then addiction just won't be a problem. And this was the perspective of very prominent figures. For example, John D. Rockefeller Sr. was quoted as saying something along the lines of, you know, you cannot become a drunkard if you never take your first drink. And similarly, you also can't become a drunkard if there's only enough for one drink. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, true. Okay, so John D. Rockefeller of the Rockefellers. Like, right widely considered to have been the richest person in modern history. Uh, he established the Standard Oil Company, which eventually became uh, some of the biggest oil and gas companies of our time, like Exxon and Mobil and Chevron. Yeah, exactly. So a pretty prominent dude. And then, uh, you know, along similar lines, Harry Anslinger, the first commissioner of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, which eventually became the Drug Enforcement Administration, or DEA, he made the argument um, that Given that physicians uh, exhibited higher rates of addiction than other professions, like lawyers, um, given that they're more frequently addicted, perhaps because they are more frequently surrounded by drugs, then perhaps um, the solution would be just limiting exposure to drugs more broadly. And so if that's the case with drugs used by physicians, it therefore would also make sense for drugs like cannabis. Since then, addiction has been considered a function of drug availability. Courtright noted that the DEA has largely followed the language of NIDA to highlight long-term dangers of drugs with the quote, abuse could trigger addiction, a chronic relapsing disease characterized by compulsive drug seeking and drug use, which is accompanied by functional and molecular changes in the brain. So it seems like the assumption there is that exposure to these drugs pretty much results in addiction. But does the science back that up? Yeah, but that's a really good point. Not everybody exposed to addictive drugs does develop addiction. And beyond that, there are interesting policy debates as to how effective this punitive approach to drug use has been. But aside from that, given what the medical and research communities were discovering with brain imaging studies, revealing changes in brain regions following drug exposure, a question that's been raised by people outside of the scientific community is why didn't 
physicians specifically um, express opposition to this punitive approach. Well, did they even have that kind of influence on public sentiment and poly- policymakers? And I don't obviously I don't know from personal experience, right? But judging from what I've read, they evidently could have influence over the policy issues like health insurance legislation, for example. And so what's the explanation for why they weren't more involved in the drug use debate? Well, I honestly haven't found a convincing argument. I found some arguments that the brain disease model of addiction hasn't yielded very much practical therapeutic value beyond some mildly effective treatments. Things like Welbutrin or, or Zyban. Uh, and Chantix for uh, smokers, or Camprol for alcoholics, or buprenorphine and methadone for heroin addicts are available, but these aren't exactly cures. And so that's kind of a fair criticism. So it seems that since the biomedical community hasn't delivered a cure for addiction or super effective treatments, they're hesitant to articulate strong opposition to the strategy of punishing drug users. That's an argument I've seen some folks make, yeah. But an important part of the discussion that seemed to be missing was the fact that this kind of assumes that upon the introduction of a theory to explain addiction as a disease, there ought to be a cure delivered very soon thereafter. And to me, this strikes me as expecting that we ought to be able to fly to the moon within the same century of inventing combustion, right? I mean, humans have been burning things, even pretty complicated chemicals, for centuries. And it took a very specific set of social and technological circumstances for humans to devote the time and investment needed into sending people to the moon. And honestly, I'd argue that understanding the complexity of the biochemistry underlying human consciousness is an even harder task than sending people to the moon. Of course you think that your science is harder than other sciences. (laughs) Okay, here's a hear me out. To get to the moon, we have to understand physics, chemistry, and a fairly complex level of biology to get there without killing the astronauts during the journey. And for better or worse, we've been firing rockets at each other for hundreds of years. Like the earliest gunpowder rockets were being shot during the Song Dynasty of China in the early, you know, or in the 13th century. It's essentially the same principles apply to shooting a projectile to the moon. But when it comes to understanding the relationships between the brain and human behavior, let alone specific behaviors that aren't adaptive to modern society, the number of factors that we have to take into consideration, I suspect, is quite a bit higher than those influencing the ability for a projectile to land in a desired direction, right? Be it somewhere on Earth or even the moon. It may seem more intuitive and simpler, given that we're basically just trying to describe human behaviors that are so mundane and day-to-day. Yeah, I mean, flying to the moon is way more impressive than explaining why I get cravings for you know, cheeseburgers, right? I've never been to the moon, um, but I get cravings for cheeseburgers like every day. (laughs) Right. So I I think understanding drug taking behavior and addiction in particular is actually very counterintuitively complicated. Uh, Anyways, I've seen the argument that if the brain disease model does actually end up yielding a pharmacotherapy that successfully curbs craving or effectively treats addiction, there'd likely be a rapid surrender of authority on this issue to physicians. So why would that be the moment that physicians would become dominant? Well, they make the argument that it'd become so fiscally burdensome to neglect the benefits of exploiting, right, the benefits of such a treatment, that public opinion would basically mandate political action. And then, you know, beyond that, special interest groups associated with the pharmaceutical industry would likely much more strongly advocate for the broad medicalization of substance abuse. In fact, I mean, there's an argument that They'd even have a fiduciary responsibility to support such changes in policy. Right, because if they have effective treatments for addiction and the government's policy for drug use just directs people to punishment rather than the possibility of receiving the company's treatment, they'd be missing out on pretty significant amounts of money. That's exactly right. 
But since treatments like that don't currently exist, it's still relatively unclear as to whether such a treatment will ever exist. Okay, so politicians and policymakers haven't been convinced by the argument that addiction is a disease that should be treated and not punished. Well, how about people in the social sciences? Did they jump on the addiction as a disease bandwagon? Well, so we've been talking for like, uh, like almost an hour, I guess. So why don't we take a break here and we'll pick up on that. Uh, and where I think folks like the chair of the Department of Psychology at Columbia University, who argues very vehemently that addiction is not only not a disease, but goes on to claim that it perpetuates racist policies, where I think they're, they're sort of missing some, some details. That the brain disease model of addiction is racist? Right, and he's not the only person who's made that argument. Some folks have suggested that this debate has roots in a historical debate between people who argue against ideas like this and people who've used ideas like this in the past to support things like eugenics. Wow, okay, so that's some, uh, that's some cliffhanger for next time. It's pretty spicy stuff. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, maybe next time we'll also cover whether you personally think it's a disease or a disorder. Sounds good. Thanks for listening, everyone. Hey, Ian. Hey, Bo. Did you know that the popular kids' television show, Mighty Morphin Power Rangers... I'm familiar. ...was banned in Malaysia because Morphin sounded too much like morphine, and they didn't want to get kids, you know, used to that to, word, I guess. To saying morphine. <laughs> <laughs> because they might eventually, you know, get addicted to... Just drugs. like the Power Rangers never did in the TV show. <laughs> it is... They were just like shouting, oh, because it's, it's morphin time. Yeah, right? it's morphin time. Yeah. So it's like the Malaysian government was like, this is a show about people doing heroin. <laughs> Maybe. Interesting. The more you know. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>